listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. My guest today is Dr. James Howard. He was a member of the ATP3 panel. He is editor of the chapter on lipoproteins and atherosclerosis for the Yearbook of Endocrinology. He is an endocrinologist specializing in lipidology, professor of medicine at Georgetown University, and in addition, his wife and he have been studying the metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, and atherosclerosis in Native Americans for the past 25 years. Dr. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Howard, what first got you interested in even studying the metabolic syndrome? Well, as an uh, endocrinologist and being located in Phoenix, where the Pima Indians are, it's almost a natural association to see how the metabolic syndrome, the central obesity, goes on and leads to diabetes. And as we have studied this whole operation, this whole syndrome, we've seen the tremendous uh, risk that it imposes for coronary vas- cardiovascular disease. What did it used to be called when you first got started in the field? Interestingly, If you go back, it was probably first delineated in the mid-50s. In 1965, though, three Italian diabetologists first described the combination of a dyslipidemia, obesity, and diabetes, and they called it the plurimetabolic syndrome. It was really popularized in this country first by Jerry Reven in the early 80s as the Syndrome X, Mm -hmm. uh, later was recognized as the Insulin Resistance Syndrome, It's also been called the Deadly Quartet, and I think uh, the ATP3 panel elected to call it the Multiple Metabolic Syndrome or Metabolic Syndrome because it was a little more descriptive of all of the issues involved. Let's elucidate the members of the quartet, if you will. It's really a constellation of major metabolic risk factors for cardiovascular disease. The underlying causes are probably a combination of obesity and insulin resistance. Now, whether uh, obesity just further begets insulin resistance and that's a single factor or not is still hotly debated. Clearly, that's a syndrome in which lifestyle contributes significantly, and we find that these risk factors are highly concordant. Uh, You find these same risk factors in many, many individuals. There, There are multiple organizations that have uh, set up criteria. The World Health Organization first in 98, the European Group on the uh, Study of Insulin Resistance, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, and even the International Diabetes Federation. But I think most people in the United States at least follow the ATP3 guidelines. You can even diagnose it as they walk into the room if their stomach enters before them. That's exactly it. I think that's the thing that makes it so valuable to put this all together is you may forget to do certain parts of the exam, but you can't forget to look at your patient. And as you say, if the belly enters the room before the patient, then you've got a patient at very high risk. Now, the ATP3 criteria do not require obesity, particularly central obesity, uh, even though it is a very, very common factor in most Caucasians, African Americans, Mexican Americans in the U.S., But there are some individuals, particularly those of Middle Eastern or the Far East, who may have not significant degrees of noticeable obesity. And the way ATP3 set it up, 
of central obesity is one of the factors, mm -hmm. and we even set some criteria. A waist circumference measured at the top of the iliac crest greater than 40 inches in a male, greater than 35 inches in a female. An atherogenic dyslipidemia, which consists of triglycerides above 150. An HDL below 50 for women, below 40 for men. Hypertension. And the presence of a impaired glucose, uh, now glucose greater than 100. Any three of those criteria really gives you the diagnosis of the metabolic syndrome. In addition, we recognize more complex factors like it's a pro-thrombotic state and it's a pro-inflammatory state. We know that CRP is elevated and these people from the very beginning. So CRP doesn't really give you the kind of discriminatory factor that it does in lean individuals to point out more severe heart disease. Here it's just part of the underlying uh, metabolic syndrome, the pre-diabetic state. Dr. Howard, what kind of numbers are we talking about here? Because it, it seems like everyone that walks in my office fits three of those five, and those are just the adults. I run a lipid clinic, and I would say the vast majority of the patients that I see here have the metabolic syndrome. We've done studies in our cath lab here at the Washington Hospital Center, which is the busiest cath lab in the country right now, and over 50% of our patients have abnormal glucose, and probably the vast majority of them have the metabolic syndrome. Overall, the most recent studies showed that there was about a 24% prevalence in all adults in the United States. This accounts for more than 50 million Americans. It increases with age, so that by the time a patient is greater than 60, uh, the prevalence has gone up to almost 42%. So it is a very common factor, and we're seeing it, frighteningly, much more common in children and adolescents in particular. What do we learn from the Indian population that you study out in Arizona that may give us some clues as to what is really causing it in Caucasians? We've been studying this population. First, the Pima Indians in Arizona, where my wife was on the faculty and on the research staff of the Phoenix Indian Medical Center as part of a uh, NIH intramural program there. And more recently, for the last 20 years, a larger population of Native Americans involving Sioux Indians in North and South Dakota, involving the Pima and Papago in Arizona, and involving what's known as the Seven Tribes of Anadarko in Oklahoma. The Pima have the highest prevalence of diabetes in the world. Uh, by the time a Pima woman is in her mid to late 60s, she has greater than a 60% chance of being diabetic, and almost the majority of the remaining patients that are not yet diabetic have the metabolic syndrome. Is it genetic or is it something that our world has forced upon them that their genes just uh, could not handle? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, question. The, probably the most interesting hypothesis is that it's the result of a thrifty gene. Uh, the Pimas have been living in the desert of Arizona, which is not a terribly hospitable environment for tens of thousands of years. And during that period of time, there was almost a process of natural selection for individuals who could get by and less. So insulin resistance is probably a thrifty form of metabolism when you have caloric deprivation. But when you have caloric affluence, we're right. not buffered against that. It results in this significant obesity and the metabolic syndrome, which leads uh, almost uh, irreconcilably on to type 2 diabetes in that population. How do we make the leap from metabolic syndrome to coronary artery disease? Is it the pro-inflammatory state that's created from the central 
adiposity, or is there something else going on? Well, I think there's multiple risk factors which are known to be cardiovascular causations. Obviously, the dyslipidemia. We have not only a significant problem with the triglycerides and with the HDL being low, but the LDL, which turns out in our studies to be the number one risk factor, even though it is not terribly impressive in terms of its absolute numbers, the LDL resists in this lean, mean form, the small, dense LDL, and more importantly than the size, is probably the particle number. So even though the LDL and the Pima Indians, for instance, may average 110, Mm -hmm. uh, the particle number of LDL particles in this small thing is, is significantly increased. And we find that LDL is the number one predictor all the way down to an LDL of below 70. So I think that plus hypertension plus the pro-thrombotic state that's there, and I'm sure the pro-inflammatory state is a contributor also. Well, in that population, are you? it doesn't seem cost-effective to be doing a, an NMR profile on everybody. Is there a poor man's way of looking at the total LDL particle number? Yeah, I think probably the easiest way is if the triglycerides are above 150, Uh, you have an increasing, as they go further above 150, you have an increasing contribution of the small, dense LDL, high particle number. So I think most of us feel that there really is no need, and it's not cost-effective, to screen people with particle number. Where I have found it now to be probably of use is once you have treated patients to their goals by the standard lipid parameters, Mm -hmm. Then to do an NMR or to do a VAP test, one of the special tests, to fine-tune those patients can probably be very beneficial. In other words, to get maximum benefit from your lipid-lowering therapy, you would want to not only bring their LDL down to a certain level, but you'd want to bring their particle number down also. Well, let's go with one of these scenarios where we have ideally lowered particle number and LDL down to, let's say, 60. Do you then focus your eyes on their the other particles, which are the HDL and the triglycerides, and, and go after that next? Yeah, very good question. I think this is one of those areas where the non-HDL cholesterol is extremely important. Unfortunately, non-HDL cholesterol is a concept that was introduced or, or that was actually popularized by ATP3, but I don't think it's a well-understood or well-appreciated, and it really deals with the triglycerides predominantly. So once you've got your LDL to goal, which in a routine diabetic without coronary disease would be to an LDL of less than 100, you would like to then get your non-HDL to less than 130. And it's whatever the LDL goal is, the non-HDL is 30 above that. So you would do that principally by treating the triglycerides. And if you get the triglycerides to less than 150, your non-HDL will fall into place. After that, the next temptation or concern is with the HDL. By bringing the triglycerides down, by treating the blood sugar, by bringing down the LDL uh, with statin therapy generally, you may actually have a significant elevation in in HDL uh, on that basis alone. Certainly, lifestyle can lead to improvement in HDL. And if that doesn't work, then one has to consider other therapies. And right now, the most uh, efficacious therapy for HDL is some form of niacin. How easy is it to get uh, an Indian population to take niacin? especially if they're heavy drinkers. We have just completed a very, very interesting three-year study of very aggressive intervention in the population of strong heart. And 
in one half of that group, we took them down to LDLs of less than 70, non-HDLs of less than 100. In the other half, we took them down to LDLs of less than 100, non-HDLs of less than 130. In the more aggressive group, we got the blood pressure to less than 115. In the less aggressive group, we got it to less than 125. We found that the Indian population were really very responsive and very compliant. We had very few major drug problems, and I think that if one takes the time to explain niacin therapy and titrates it gradually, uh, that you can get people to comply. Well, Dr. Howard, thank you very much for coming on Lipid Luminations today. It was a pleasure to talk about this topic. I think it's extremely important and one that the public needs to be aware of and certainly physicians need to pay very close attention to. Thank you very much and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals.